Welcome to our noontime webinar. I'm Dr. Jill Brooks, Director of Education for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we're here to help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, be it a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. Today's topic, ICD-10 2017 updates, will be presented by Karna Morrow, Manager of Consulting from Coding Strategies, one of our most valued partners. Karna is a certified professional coder, holds radiology coding certification, is a certified coding specialist physician-based, and an AHIMA-approved ICD-10 CM trainer. Karna possesses over 15 years of experience within the community and academic hospitals, as well as private practices and third-party billing companies in areas from billing and collections to coding and compliance, revenue enhancement, and process improvement. Karna provides coding strategies clients with coding support, audits, and customized on-site training. Her areas of specialty include diagnostic radiology, interventional radiology, cardiology, and evaluation and management. A copy of her slide deck is available for download on the control panel. Your Paycom CU certificate will be sent to you within 24 hours. There's no need to request one. For BC Advantage members, additional CU opportunities may be available on their website. For our subscribed clients of First Healthcare Compliance, Karna has some exciting news about a special that she will share with you later in the presentation. Karna? Thank you, Jim. It is a pleasure to, to, to participate in this session today. I know that ICD-10, you know, the big go live was obviously last October, but it continues to be front and center of your workflow. So it's really important to understand the impact of the 2017 changes. And as a reminder, that's a go live of October not January. So our three primary objectives today is to really determine what it is that you need to review within your individual practice because obviously if I'm in ophthalmology versus obstetrics we have different needs and we have different um, the volume of the code set is just going to be different for us. So then we're going to dive in chapter by chapter just to explore some of those changes and then really talk about and readdress how ICD-10 is really at the center of the changes that are coming down um, in the future. I do want to manage our expectations. We have a very limited amount of time today, so we're definitely not walking through all 2,000 changes that are going to go live October 1st, but we do want to highlight categories, or I want to highlight the types of changes that have happened, and then you can consider um, how to apply that to your practice. We do want to put a special attention on the second and the third bullet on this slide. Please remember that when we went live a year ago, we were sort of given a grace period. Grace period said that we would be allowed to submit claims with the unspecified code designation, and we would have that year to sort of get our documentation up to the I-10 level of specificity. Well, that was a one-year grace, and so that grace is ending, you know, basically in five months. So we need to make sure that we're really staying on top of our documentation, and you need to be running a frequency report here in the next couple of weeks, maybe the next month, to identify how many unspecified you are currently using so you can rein those in. We also need to remember that PQRS and MIPS and the value-based modifier and all of the quality reporting measures are anchored in ICD-10, and we'll talk about that as we go through. 
When you think about an update in ICD-10, this isn't quite as straightforward as a CPT update. It's not a matter of, you know, here are the 75 codes. You really need to look at three separate components, if I can categorize it that way. There are three separate um, sets of data that you need to consider for any of the diagnose, diagnosis code updates. I know that it's really tempting just to jump into the codes, but we really have to stop and look at the official guidelines because those are our instructions. We have to go back to the index, and that is not only you know, the fast way to find codes, but the index actually tells us what words crosswalk to which codes and then obviously the tabular list with all of the codes, and that's the piece that I think we are most familiar with. So let's take these one at a time. Now, unfortunately, I, ha I have to say that although the guidelines were due in June, and today is the 13th of July, we do not have the official guidelines yet. They have not been released. But I do want to you know, put it on your radar and make sure that you know you're going to go out and pull down the guidelines. They'll look just like this, except it'll say fiscal year 2017. And I want to show you why, um, why that's important. Let me walk through just a couple examples. You know, it's within the guidelines that we learned how to code borderline pneumonia or borderline hypertension. I think some coders have considered the phrase borderline similar to um, you know, a rule out or a suspected and haven't coded it, but according to the guidelines, then we are supposed to. It's within the guidelines that we also confirm that when wrist pain, as an example, is explained in the final diagnosis of sprain, wrist pain is not reported separately. If the abdominal pain as the presenting sign and system, sy symptom is due to the kidney stones, well, then we don't report the abdominal pain. However, if the cause of the patient's fatigue is in fact not explained by, let's say, their thyroid disorder, then we may be reporting both in the same encounter if both were managed. So we really want to be careful, and that's one of the things that Coding Strategies has noticed as we've gone through audits, is that we are reporting both the presenting sign and symptom and the confirmed diagnosis, and that is against the guidelines. The guidelines are also going to instruct us how to interpret keywords, and this one is huge for primary care, cardio, um, and uh, OB practices. Section I, subset A, 15, you can tell these guidelines are long, but it says the word with should be interpreted to mean associated with or due to when it appears in a code title or the alphabetic index. And that is really important. Let's look at that as the example of diabetes. So what it really means is you've got a medical record and it says the patient has diabetes. Well, the medical record also says they have, let's say, chronic kidney disease. The physician does not have to say that that chronic kidney disease is due to the diabetes because the index says with. Diabetes with. And then any of the conditions underneath that word with, that association is assumed and it does not have to be documented within the medical record. And that's one thing we really want to be aware of is when do we need to push back and when is the documentation sufficient? In fact, in these situations, the provider would actually have to document that one is not due to the other 
in order for you to select a different code. The guidelines are very specific. Notice that it said, let me back up, it said when that word appears in the title, the alphabetic index, or instructional notes. So don't go and take that um, idea across to everything. There are certain circumstances when the physician definitely needs to, to document the relationship between two conditions, but this isn't one of them. Another word that we've sort of gotten sort of snagged on, believe it or not, is the word and. This is another situation where the guidelines clarified it for us. The word and should be interpreted to mean and or or when it appears in the code title. So M19.071 or 072 where it says right ankle and foot. What that really means is right ankle and or foot. And so just because the patient does not demonstrate um, the osteoarthritis in both locations does not mean you go to an otherwise specified code. We need to read the guidelines to understand how to apply the information we've been given. So once it's released, the guidelines and actually the entire code set can be downloaded for free from the CDC website. Simply go to cdc.gov and enter ICD-10-CM in the search field. Now the PDF versions you're going to download are going to be very large, but they're actually very helpful, especially in training situations like this one, because many of the hard copy versions are still in that micro font that makes it very difficult to um, Xerox and really use. Okay, so the second component that I mentioned you should really take some time and evaluate is the index. Now, I know we were all taught in coding that step one is the index, but there really is that temptation just to jump into the tabular list and find the code. That can result in wrong codes. And the index is actually updated as often, if not more, than the code set itself. For example, for this update, effective October 1, there's a new index term for fracture, non-traumatic, not otherwise classified. And there are a lot of subterms under this for new codes for atypical femoral fractures. Now, these are very different from the periprosthetic fractures, um, whether the fracture has been linked to a certain type of medication for osteoporosis, but if we go through the index, in previous editions of um, diagnosis coding, the periprosthetic fractures were classified as a mechanical complication. Well, for 2017, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons requested that these conditions be reclassified to the muscular skeletal section. So you'll see that they have been put back into the category of the M97. You'll also notice on this slide how there's the little dash after M97.2 for the ankle. Remember that dash means that there are still additional characters that are required, and these new codes do require that seventh character. The specific keywords that you use when you search the index can also have an impact on the final code. So if you are in a situation where your practice has multiple coders or you have you know, a complete coding team, this is an example, this is an exercise that you want to do with, in your next, say, coding team meeting. If I had chosen the word disorder and then alcohol and use, the index would have directed me to an F10 like it did in 2016. 
But for 2017, if the documentation in your medical record simply says alcohol use, there's not any qualifiers about being mild or moderate, the record just says alcohol use. Then effective October 1, we have been redirected to code that as a Z72.89, not the F codes like we were directed when we went live last year. This, is a, this does highlight how important it is for coders and physicians to have a consistent language amongst yourself because we want to make sure that if the same patient is seen, you know, maybe by two physicians in the same practice, I saw you on Monday, you went on vacation, so I saw your colleague three weeks from now, I want to make sure that the same condition is reported in the same way. But the index for 2017 actually has a different pathway if it's documented as out of control versus uncontrolled. And some physicians I know have rolled their eyes at me and said they're basically synonymous. And I, I'm not going to disagree with that. I don't have you know that background. But the physicians need to understand that if they documented it as out of control, it's going to be coded as hyperglycemia. If they do it as uncontrolled, we're going to push back to see if it's hypo or if it's hyper. We see this same kind of disconnect when physicians will interchange the phrase an AV malformation and an AV fistula. A lot of physicians will say, yeah, those are really interchangeable terms, but when it comes to coding, one is coded as a congenital condition and one is coded as an acquired condition. So it's very important that as best that we can, at least within our own practice, we have consistency in how we code things. You know, at the end of the day, it still comes back to the clinical information needs to be as specific as possible. I appreciate that your patient may not know anything more than pain in buttocks, but that's their incoming sign and symptom. After the evaluation, then the assessment should hopefully allow for a little bit more accurate reporting. Is it muscle? Is it nerve? Is it status post an injury? Just as a heads up though, one thing that we do see um, incorrectly coded as we're performing audits is I'm seeing too many people assign this as a back pain. And from an anatomical perspective, those aren't the same location, and so you would end up actually using pain not otherwise specified from the R52. One thing that ITAN has definitely brought front and center is the need to do more than just match a word to a number. We really are abstracting. And when we speak about coding in the definition of abstracting, we're talking about a task, not a job title. If it is the provider that's selecting a diagnosis code because they're in their EMR, they have to choose that from that drop-down box before they can close the record, well, then they're going to need the same training as you would give someone with the job title as a coder. We see a lot of disconnects in our audits that come down to a misunderstanding of the terms. Muscular skeletal seems to be at the top of the list especially fractures. The terms that have been created by ICD-10 don't necessarily match word for word the terms that are used within an op note or that are used by our physicians. You know, but if it is a transverse fracture of a distal radius, it's a Coley's fracture. 
And so our coders may need a little bit more understanding or familiarity with the conditions that are frequently reported within your practice and the language within your, within your practice. Spinal conditions, and I see this most frequently coming from imaging practices or pain clinics and ortho practices. This is another situation where sometimes terms um, are assumed to be synonyms, you know, degenerative and discogenic disease, disc degeneration or disc disease, but other terms are not to be used interchangeably and there are some very specific rules on how to code them. For example, if you run a frequency report and you identify that you're using that M99 category as highlighted here in the second bullet. It has a very specific note that says do not report if the condition can be reported somewhere else. The index is the best place to help you know which terms are reported with the same codes and which ones need to sort of redirect or recalculate your route. As we dive into the third component of the code update, it's still important to remember to read the instructions. Don't jump just to the code, and sometimes that's a challenge. Within the electronic health record, the physicians put in a term, a search box, and it gives them a list of codes. It doesn't necessarily give them that rest of the story. And you know, once upon a time, it was really easy to flip open to my chapter. You know, I managed a cardiology practice back in the day, and so I could just go to the cardiovascular diseases. But now that we're telling a patient's whole story, and we have to consider their underlying chronic conditions, their past medical history, adding codes for social history, then I sort of need to look at more than just my chapter. Please remember that most of the chapters have notes that pertain to the entire chapter, as you see here with chapter 8. Diseases of the ear, it specifically says for the entire chapter to use an internal cause code following the code for the ear condition. And we would miss that if we, did, if we had jumped just straight to the codes. Other guidelines are more code range specific or subcategory specific. So my malignant neoplasm of the larynx very specific to the range of C32, identify the alcohol use, the exposure, tobacco dependence, etc. So we need to make sure that we're looking at the full story and not just the actual code. The other piece of the tabular list that we need to remember and watch for updates. Now you remember the difference between exclude one, which means never report together, and exclude two, report with caution. Well, those very subtle changes are going to exist within this 2017 code set update. What was an exclude two may now be an exclude one, which means don't report those codes together. There's a lot that goes into a code update that is a lot more than did your vendor load the new codes make sure that we can use the codes and still be compliant. Now I am going to sort of you know, scan through the chapter highlights. Again, I can't go through each and every change, but I want to just share with you the types of changes by chapter. What you're going to do is sort of create a to-do list. When you recognize that you have those types of conditions in your practice, you're just going to put a little you know, check mark on your handout or jot down that category and then you can look at it for further review based on your specific practices. 
So let's start at the beginning. You know, it makes sense. As new conditions are discovered, there has to be a way to track them. So there is a new code for the Zika virus, A92.5. It's one of those that I personally would like to say we won't ever use, but I'm not quite that naive. Um, if we look at the other cha primary change for this chapter, the viral hepatitis, hepatitis status. This reflects more current thinking that so-called carriers actually have a chronic liver infection. Within the neoplasm chapter, it's again nice to see the language updated to conform more with the phrasing we use here in the United States. So the term classical has been deleted from the Hodgkin lymphoma. Remember that the ICD-10 code set is international. But the reason why it's called ICD-10-CM is the clinical modification allows for the United States or any country to adapt the codes to meet their specific um, set of circumstances for their country. One thing I've highlighted throughout this update, so you'll notice these on your handouts, I wanted to really draw attention to the contributing parties. When we went live on I-10, there was a lot of um, physicians, particularly, who saw absolutely no use in the level of detail. There was a lot of publicity about how useless ICD-10 codes were. Okay, I hear, I hear them, and if we're talking about six ways to get attacked by a turkey, I'm going to agree with them. But at the same time, I continue to see the contributions and requests made by almost every individual specialty group that is active. And so at the request of the American Neurological Society, changes were made within the D49.5. ICD-10 is a collaborative effort of many, many parties. I want to highlight the fact that some of the notes within the subchapters have changed as well. And again, you're only going to see this if you step outside of the electronic medical record. If we accept that future reimbursement may be you know, some piece of outcome-based or quality-based, then adding a code that is specifically for following treatment on the prostate cancer makes sense for tracking. I understand that it's clinically still a little frustrating to take, the to take the time to document and report these additional codes. But I-10 has definitely taught us it's more than paying a claim. The codes are a database for healthcare policy and reform. That's highlighted when it's more than just the specialty societies that are involved. The Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality have also requested changes to the code set. It is more than just about reimbursement. When we look at changes in the endocrine section, it's nice that we now have a, long, a code for a long-term use of oral hypoglycemic drugs. Now, the third bullet on this slide, you are going to see repeated through many of the chapters. There's been a big distinction on coding the difference between a hemorrhage and a hematoma. So almost all the chapters for which that is relevant you are going to see that change. The seventh character does communicate more than just the episode of care for injuries. Other chapters, like here in the endocrine, we know that we have it in the OB chapter as well, they utilize that seventh character to communicate severity. So beginning October, the diabetic retinopathy codes will also have a seventh character to communicate that severity. If we look at the mental and behavioral codes, we really need to recognize there are two sets of codes for reporting mental health. 
The DSM-5 that was updated in 2013 is still the universal authority for psychiatric diagnosis. So ICD-10-CM for the 2017 is trying to adapt the lang their language to be consistent across that DSM code set and hopefully that will make more sense to the providers um, within a reporting capacity. You know, again, time doesn't permit a code-to-code -code discussion for every chapter, but recognize these types of coding. If you have patients who you are managing or sending referrals for eating disorders or mood disorders, tag those and circle back to these chapters in more detail. Within the nervous section, you're going to see again that distinction between a post-procedural hemorrhage and the post-procedural hematoma. Retinovascular occlusion now will also require a seventh character for severity. Remember we're still leaning on those four key data points. The codes are looking for details about the location, the severity, the context, and if it's an injury, the story. So if you capture those four details, then you're going to have the sufficient um, detail to come up with an I-10 code. You will know the laterality to be able to come up with that H53.04 or the H35.3 from a detailed perspective. So a lot of the codes, a lot of the changes really were about adding that laterality. And that is, you know, a huge change for the coders in the United States. The index and the tabular list itself are continuing to be tweaked so that all relevant body parts that have a left and a right actually have a code for left and right and or bilateral. There is a new category, I-16, for hypertensive crisis, and this has been added, as you can see, at the request of the American Academy of Pediatrics. It contains specific codes for hypertensive urgency versus hypertensive emergency and an unspecified hypertensive crisis. In a hypertensive urgency, there is no associated progressive organ dysfunction but an emergency is associated with that impending or progressive organ damage. And so you can see how that would obviously directly relate to the severity of the patient. Some changes have been made to reflect the World Health Organization, or WHO. So even though the United States does have our clinical modifications, changes still need to be made so that there is consistency in reporting across countries. You'll notice again the same, the same change here for post-procedural post hemorrhage and post-procedural hematoma that was requested within the respiratory section by the American Association for, for Trauma Surgeons. I need to really stress the value of reading the full chapter and not just jumping straight into the codes because I can get to the code from the search engine. But some instructions really are linked and only available from the full text. So the J47.0 is, actual, is actually a new code for this year, but it's also linked very specifically to identifying um, the type of infection. Many chapter-driven, as it says here with the whole piece of Chapter 10, when the respiratory condition is described in more than one site, then it should be classified to the lower anatomic site. How to use the code is almost as important as what the code. It's interesting that within the same chapter, let's use digestive as an example, we have both the American Association of Surgery for Trauma 
and the American Academy of Pediatrics, both contributing to the changes within this code set. And both of them are focusing on the severity, whether it's acute, whether it's chronic, whether there's necrosis, whether there's an infection, and then the context of those presenting problems. New codes in the category of K52 for various types of gastroenteritis and colitis, including an indeterminate colitis. I'm probably not the only one who has seen the commercial on T for the opiate-induced constipation. Well, now there's a code for reporting that condition. We see the codes follow those trends. An example of K90.41, we know there's a lot of gluten sensitivity um, in our society today, and so now we have a code for non-celiac gluten sensitivity. The Alliance for Aging Research has um, also stepped in and asked for um, additional codes to be added, and that again creates that database. Now, I don't expect everyone um, to have all of these codes memorized. You know, this is not the time of year to say, what is N83, N94, N99, etc. But what it does do is allow you to recognize if you are dealing with that range of codes, if your practice is dealing with urethral strictures or managing incontinence or any other kind of GI issues, you're going to know whether you do or do not use that category of codes. You know, it's more or less understood that we can't code what we don't have documented, but the OB section or the pregnancy section really caused a lot of angst with how the descriptions were written for 2016. There was a code that said up to 36 weeks and a code for after 37. So there was a lot of question about, well, what, when it's exactly 37. So the codes and the descriptions have been clarified, and so for 2017 it is at or after 37 weeks. The, uh, decalc, the default code for the placenta previa is now 044.0. This is a change from the previous editions of the ICD-10 where with hemorrhage was sort of the default. The default is now without, and ACOG requested this change on the grounds that these conditions are typically diagnosed prior and um, conditions are diagnosed and the baby's delivered prior to that onset of, of bleeding. Remember when we said in the endocrine section that there was a new code for the oral hypoglycemic drugs? Well, then it made sense that that subcategory within the pregnancy chapter was also updated to, to communicate that same information in a gestational diabetic patient. American Academy of Pediatrics have the categories for the P00 to P04, which is all the newborn affected by maternal factors, revised to remove the words suspected to be. So in 2016, or today, the code P02.0 is defined as newborn suspected to be affected by a placenta previa. Now it just simply says, or for the 2017 effective in October, it will say newborn affected by placenta previa. So we're seeing those kinds of changes made, and we're also seeing clarifications for large for gestational age, that P05.0, is clarifying that it means newborns with weight below that 10th percentile, and the small for gestational age, it's the weight and length below the 10th below the 10th percentile for gestational age. So again, it's not so much 
that the code number is new or revised, but the um, application of it. The congenital malformation chapter had a few minor changes, and again, these are the, at the request of the HRQ. They're wanting to track several specific types of congenital vascular malformations, such as an interruption aortic arch, or perhaps a double aortic arch. Any anomalous origin of the subclavian artery is now going to be reported as well. The R chapter is one that I think every single specialty and every practice will use. It's sort of that foundation for, we don't have a diagnosis yet. So it's really important to take the time to walk through these codes very specifically. And just start at the top of the list, and again, I obviously just pulled some random examples, but R31.21, an asymptomatic patient, but they still require further workup. And historically, when the patient is not showing any signs or symptoms, then we've sort of been challenged with, how do I support the medical necessity of all of this lab work? And so now I have a code that clearly communicates what's going on. I know they're asymptomatic, but and I need the additional codes for that. Voiding difficulties, the chronic bladder pain versus an acute. R73.03, for prediabetes, there is an abnormal blood sugar, but that abnormal blood sugar is not yet high enough to classify the patient as diabetes. The documentation also does not say borderline, there's just an abnormal blood sugar. I can use the abnormal lab codes, but when they've given me a very specific code, we all know that we code to the highest degree of specificity. Most of the changes within the injury chapter, and you're going to see that there are a lot of collaborating parties on this one, but the changes are primarily centered around including more codes for the laterality. So in the trenches, I'm hoping that all of the documentation improvement we've been focused on for the last couple of years, laterality is a given especially if I'm in orthopedics, laterality is almost always documented. What you're going to need to do is change your coding behavior and drop those unspecified codes and be sure you're looking up whether it's left, whether it's right, or whether there's an option and it's appropriate to be picking up a bilateral code. What's interesting that it was the Veterans Administration that requested the revisions to the codes for concussion. This was interesting to me because, as I understand it, the VA really processes their own claims. Um, it demonstrates definitely the scope of interested parties and just you know how far-reaching the use of ICD-10 is, and that it definitely goes beyond an insurance claim form. But we really have three choices now: either there's a concussion without a loss of consciousness, the loss of consciousness is under 30 minutes or it's an unspecified duration. And again, remember that the dash after the zero, the one, and the nine clarifies that there is an additional um, character in order to consider that a complete claim. So American, American APMA, I am losing my tongue ability today. We want, they wanted more fractures, more specificity as far as location. They wanted more specificity as far as type goes. And so the S99 series has been revised and expanded to accommodate those, their requests. If I'm going to agree that context is a key data element when reviewing the changes, so I know I need location, I know I need severity, 
If I'm going to accept that context is key, then the changes within the complication chapter really make sense. It isn't just an embolization, but the T8 2.817, it's an embolization that is due to a specific device implant or graft. And then I can divide that even further by being able to trend or track whether it was the generator or whether it was the lead. What specific component of the neurostimulator caused the problem? And I agree, some of your physicians are going to roll their eyes at that level of detail, but remember it does come down to some trending and some tracking for policy and for more than just reimbursement. Now I appreciate that these chapter, that these codes here, your Z53 series, may be less frequently used in a practice setting, but I really wanted to use them to highlight the need to consider changes within every chapter. So if you are in a procedure-based practice and your physicians have been in a situation where they've had a minimally invasive procedure converted to an open procedure, then there are very specific Z codes to explain that as a diagnosis. This may be a little more confusing than um, some of the other changes because this sort of gets into that gray zone of coding for what I did and that we know is more of the PCS coding. But you are explaining perhaps more of the severity of the patient or the context for the procedure that you're billing for and that's what these Z codes um, are really coming down to. The changes within the Z29 series highlight two things. Obviously, we have great codes for encounter for prophylactic measures, but the bigger highlight here is to make sure that you're coding for the intent. Are you seeing the patient and are you providing this service to prevent a condition? Or are you administering a specific drug to treat the condition? You know, one of the, probably the easiest example I have is when I see this with oncology practices and Nulasta. Is Nulasta being administered to prevent an infection? Well, then that's going to be a Z code. I can't tag the patient as if they had. I can't tag them with an infection they might get. I've got to make sure that on the data service, the codes that I choose directly match the documentation and with the last of these specific lab values. So you need to explore the Z codes and identify those situations in which you are doing it as a preventative measure instead of actively managing an existing condition. There are two additional codes within the Z section, Z31.7 and Z33.3, that may have value to some of your practices. They've been established for gestational carriers. So if a woman's unable to carry a pregnancy to term, the fetus is conceived outside the womb and then implanted in another woman. So that other woman becomes the carrier. This is different from the traditional surrogate pregnancy. Um, and so now that that is a practice that is becoming more prevalent in our culture, we needed the codes to be able to trend and track that. Now, I don't know, we obviously haven't started using these codes yet, but I'm curious how the insurance companies will handle the Z31 and the Z33 when it is 
you know, that carrier situation, are we going to run into those similar to what we do for other um, transplant? Whose insurance is paying the bill is, I guess, what I come down to. So if you're in the OB um, practice, you've got your GYN patients or your OB patients, then you may want to take some consideration there. Before we, you know, talk about the impact of ICD-10 coding and the impact of medical necessity, I need to stop for just a minute and talk about unspecified codes. They were our default codes in I-9. Because we were given the year grace, they sort of became our default codes in ICD-10. Don't swing the pendulum too far. I don't want anyone to think the grace period is over, therefore I can never in any circumstance bill an unlisted code. I am aware of coders that have really pushed back on physicians and said, you can't just tell me chest pain. I've got to know if it's, you know, the chest wall, I've got to know if it's more when they're laying down. Sometimes we don't know what we don't know. And so I really want you to think about your unspecified codes and put them in context. Recognize that it makes a difference, the location of the service, who is providing the service, and where are we in that treatment plan. For example, if I have a patient that comes to the emergency room, so the location is emergency room, they show up with abdominal pain and the patient tells me they have, you know, pancreatic cancer. In that setting, it's probably not reasonable to expect the patient to know if it's head, body, or tail of the pancreas. We're taking care of the abdominal pain. So in that location, an unspecified code for pancreatic cancer is appropriate, and it definitely puts that abdominal pain in a potential context. Now, if the location of that abdominal pain is actually an office visit to the oncologist, the lack of specificity is not as acceptable. You know, if we look at, um, let's look at heart failure. That takes a lot of people to the emergency room. Um, we may have some primary care physicians that are referring or bringing in a cardiologist as a consultant, okay? There really isn't a more specific code until I've done more diagnostic studies. You know, we see the same thing with pneumonia. You know, unless the patient is in an acute care setting with the infectious disease department involved, the patient isn't responding to treatment, it is unlikely that your, practice, your you know, private practice physician or the emergency room or radiology will ever know the organism that's causing the pneumonia. So I'm not going to expect more detail. J1.8.9, pneumonia unspecified organism, is a perfectly acceptable code. Altered mental status is another one that is identified as an unspecified but there really isn't a more specific code at that initial point of, you know, the patient's treatment plan. They come in with signs and symptoms. We do a workup. We come to, in some cases, differential diagnosis. Could be this, could be that. Is this the first time the patient is being seen for this? Is this a chronic, long-standing condition? 
the level of detail is driven by where is the patient being seen, what is the specialty of the provider, and is this the initial encounter, a subsequent encounter, a follow-up encounter? All of those details need to be taken into consideration before we continue to push physicians and ask for more detail that they may not have. As you consider the kind of updates, always remember that any change in coding has a domino effect. And so when they change the ICD-10 codes, that obviously is going to change every LCD, NCD, or other payer policies that are out there because those are driven by diagnosis, they're driven by coverage. I'm giving you a couple examples within the handouts, but please don't think that that is an exclusive list. And some of them you can see I'm using them as examples, not so much because of the bone DEXA or the colorectal cancer screening, but I want you to recognize how um, fluid the effective date is. The policies are in place, the codes get changed. Sometimes that policy gets the codes incorporated in a timely manner, sometimes they don't. And so in a lot of situations it is clean up on the back end because we need to make sure that effective July 1st of 2016, these codes, like for the bone DEXs, the M85.8 series, is now going to be a payable diagnosis. Well, I may need to go back to my claims of the last week if they've been processed and denied and make sure that they get done appropriately. It is unfortunate, but not all insurance companies will scrub their database and find claims they've paid inappropriately. They updated the policy. It is unfortunately, in most situations, our responsibility to go back through our own claims and identify those that may need to be resubmitted or handled as a corrected claim. One of the things that we need to really make sure we're comfortable is being able to query our systems by diagnosis code. We've always been able to run frequency reports by CPT codes. We've always been able to query, you know, for, for other specific reasons, but diagnosis codes traditionally have not been at the top of that list. Again, this is one that the date is retro clear back to October of 15. We need to make sure that the payers update it as appropriate and sometimes we're the ones um, that are educating the payers. We do note that Medicare has not added codes for the unspecified site and so we need to make sure that there is a disorder of the bone. Then we need to be able to identify the bone, identify the laterality, or at least confirm that it is of multiple sites. Lung cancer screening has been one that is probably at the top of the list for being plagued with diagnosis problems. The program went live right at that crossover of I-9 to I-10 and some of the diagnosis codes did not appropriately get added and so you're going to have to really monitor those. If you have requested diagnostic mammals in any of your patients, and I say that even if you're not radiology, because when we order services for and behalf of our patients, if they're not paid and the patient ends up paying the balance, then sometimes that influences the patient's willingness to return or to get follow-up studies. So we don't own that per se as getting us paid, 
but if you are ordering those studies for your patients, it's in your best interest to at least keep an idea, an eye on what is paid and what isn't. PQRS is alive and well, the Physician Quality Reporting System. This is something else you need to be very careful of because you chose your measures, whether you're claims-based or whether you are registry or you know, however you're reporting it, you had your ducks in a row from January to September 31st. Well, when the new codes come into play in October, does that make you eligible for measures that you might not have otherwise been eligible for? And from October to December, if you report that service more than the minimum time, you might find yourself snagged in a PQRS where you're not eligible and you thought you were. If it seems that the diagnosis codes that were added for October are not in sync with the intent prior to October, you want to get a hold of the payer and clarify that and resolve that before December 31st. Now I understand a lot of you have moved to registry-based and I, I, I understand that because it's a lot easier to do things you know on a quarterly basis or even a monthly basis than it is to try and get it right as it goes out the door with the claim. But keep in mind that this ICD-10 update impacts and has those little feelers reaching out to programs as far reaching as the PQRS. So October 1 of 2017, we are going to see some of the similar challenges that we had with October 1 of 2015. We may recognize an increase in denial with the unspecified codes when that was legitimately the correct code and we're going to have to educate the payers. The status codes, the personal history of, the family history of, those types of codes may still be snacking within the systems depending on or despite the intent. I would encourage every practice to have access to the American Hospital Association's coding clinic. I know that it's hospital and I'm a private practice they are the collaborative party for I-10, and so they are our authoritative source on how to use the codes. It is a quarterly publication. There are you know, 20 plus pages of Q&A. If this is my documentation, can I use this code? No, because. And almost every issue has something that is relevant to a given practice. The last caution that I want to make as we look at these updates, please remember that just because I have a code doesn't mean the code replaces your clinical statements and don't let your EMR drive you to that position. The AHA, which is the coding clinic I was just mentioning, originally put this Q&A out in 2012. And then a lot of comments were made, well, we weren't on I-10 at that point. So they happily restated it in the fourth quarter of 2015, which basically said exactly the same thing. It's not appropriate to list just a code in lieu of a written diagnostic statement. At the end of the day, why we're using these codes is to defend the medical necessity of the services we're providing. Medical necessity is defined as what meets but does not exceed the patient's needs. So if I have a severe patient, that's why I'm billing a level five office visit. That's why I am putting them in ICU. That's why I'm doing three or four procedures. That's why I'm seeing them every two weeks. Whatever the dynamics are, we're communicating that through our codes for medical necessity. In a practice setting, 
do not forget that there are diagnosis codes that further explain the story. And there's a whole laundry list of situations where it explains why you are providing more support that in another situation a family might step in and do. If your patients are low income, if they're homeless, if they need additional assistance, if they're non-compliant due to financial reasons, there are a lot of socioeconomic codes that can help explain, again, the services you're rendering, but from a data collection perspective, they can help those making policy better understand the clinical demographics of our patients. At the end of the day, we are just focusing in on those four key details. We still want the location, the severity, the context, and the story. Now, again, as I've said before, don't swing that pendulum too far. Um, for those of you in primary care, um, internal medicine practice, you could probably come up with 15 diagnosis codes on every patient. Keep it focused. What is the primary reason you are requesting imaging? What is the primary reason your patient is here today? What is the primary reason for the service you're rendering? And what are the chronic conditions that are going to impact that? You're in orthopedics. You're treating a fracture. Is the fact that they have a long-term steroid use, is the fact that they are a smoker, is the fact, do any of those facts contribute to whether or not this patient is going to heal timely? If the answer is yes, then those chronic conditions are impacting your medical decision making. If there are any risk factors, this patient has a personal history of, family history of, they have had genetic testing, all of those are factored into how I choose the codes for a given day. The physicians are going to start being more aware of this alternative payment model and whether, you know, there's a lot of names on it and it's not completely defined. But what we learned from PQRS is that there's this two-year window. What we are um, compensated for or penalized for in 2016 is based on what diagnosis codes we submitted in 14. So a lot of the changes that you're hearing with MIPS, with value-based modifier, with um, all of these alternative payment plans, outcome-based, we're starting to hear that the implementation date is 2018, 2019. Okay, but if that's a two-year window, then the codes I'm submitting today impact that. And it doesn't matter what the new program is. The return on the investment it always comes back to the patient's clinical condition. And that clinical condition is always reported with a diagnosis code. So we need a lot more attention on the diagnosis code that's going out the door, in addition, obviously, to CPT. But we really need to put as much attention on the diagnosis code. That does require some physician and provider and nursing education. This has got to go beyond the coders was very interesting that NCBI actually did a study and their data suggested that in a single 90-minute billing and coding education session that 90 minutes was sufficient to bring non-coders sort of up to speed on what was needed and so you know as we close this educational session out today we do want to remind you that this education is ongoing and it's not ongoing just for the coders, but anytime there are new codes, anytime there are new guidelines, anytime you perform an internal or an external audit 
and you have that kind of feedback. We need to circle the, the troops and get all the stakeholders involved and provide that education. It's not something that's optional and I appreciate that it's not always going to be free. So if you're participating today and you're in that managerial role, please make sure you're budgeting appropriately for your educational resources. It's not something that we can delegate to a vendor. I can't say, hey, my EMR's got that covered. I can't say, hey, my coders have that covered. And I agree, sometimes it's not convenient. I might have to you know, have an early morning or a late evening or a long lunch, and I might have to reschedule a few patients. But it doesn't have to be painful. It just needs to happen. Now, Jill at the beginning of the program said that there was an, um, a special offer that Coding Strategies is making available to those who are um, part of the First Healthcare family, and that is an E&M review. And so when we go through um, the documentation and how you have reported your both CPT codes but also your ICD-10, we can help you make sure that you're capturing the level of detail that really communicates the severity of that patient. It's done on a case-by-case, case, um, but we can, you know, stratify the statistics so that it's by location or so that it's by provider. But what we're offering is to review um, 10 encounters per provider at 350 per provider. Or if you want to, you know, you've got a larger practice and a larger situation, then you can pick and choose across providers or locations um, and do it in, in a block of 50 encounters and you're welcome to reach out to First Healthcare for you know, more access to that, and this offer does go through um, December 31st. Jill, I think that that is probably brain capacity, and I'm showing that we're right at the top of the hour, so I'm gonna turn this back to you, and thank you for the opportunity to present this information today. Well, Karna, thank you so much, and as you can see, her contact information is on the slide, so if you have any questions, you can contact her directly. Uh, if you would like to request a demo of our compliance management tool, please contact us at info at 1hcc.com or uh, dial 888-543-4778. Your CEU certificate will be sent to you within 24 hours. Thank you and have a great day.